Hey Pacers fans, this is Victor Oladipo, and you're listening to the Sideline Guys Podcast. Well, in a lot of ways, Pacers fans, I think you've been waiting for this day for nearly an entire calendar year. We are, depending on when you are listening to this, either at opening night or we're going to post this on a Tuesday evening, get a little bit of a head start, give you more time to listen to it. So perhaps it's the night before uh, the opener for you, but an extremely exciting time as a strange and unusual 2020-2021 season for the Pacers in the NBA is about to embark. Welcome into another Sideline Guys podcast alongside Jeremiah Johnson. I'm Pat Boylan. All right, the last time we talked, JJ, we were kind of oddly nestled in the middle of the preseason. The preseason is now over, three games in the books, and the Pacers are moments away from hosting the New York Knicks on opening night. What were your general takeaways from the preseason? I think we got to see a lot of the starters. We also saw Nate Bjorkman go pretty far into uh, the depth of his rotations, and you oftentimes in close games saw guys that were uh, you know, pretty far down the line trying to close things out. An interesting mix of those two things. What were your big takeaways? Before I share my preseason observations, I did want to say that I love that it kind of feels normal, that it is the week of Christmas, and I'm trying to balance last-minute gift buying and a Pacers game, <laughs> uh, all while trying to think about my job and my family and everything else. It's very different than normal, and it's so odd that it is the first game that I'm preparing for, but there is just something good about thinking about Pacers, NBA, Christmas, all in the same week. And so for that, I am happy to your question about the preseason. Uh, I, you know, so many times you're trained as fans and even media members to say preseason is pointless. I think it is kind of what you say in the NFL. People always get tired of preseason games and there were no preseason games this year, but I think it was very important. It was necessary for the Pacers to have those three games. I think it was good for them to have that road trip where they had two games in one city, perhaps some additional time to kind of get to know each other a little bit while they were mostly, I think, staying in their hotel rooms. And then the on-court activities, just how it's going to work from Nate Bjorkgren's perspective, where you know I think one of his priorities with Toronto was making sure that Nick Nurse didn't get a technical foul. Now he's the one that is uh, calling the plays, talking to the referees, handling all of the you know day-to-day or minute-by-minute details of a game. So I think it was important for him to have this kind of dry run experience. I think it was important at Bankers Life Fieldhouse for everyone to kind of see how a game is going to work with basically no fans other than friends and family or family of players. Um, so that was really good. And then what you, I think, really asked about was the on-court um, product. <laughs> I think it was continuing to have opportunities to work with Nate Bjorkren's style, to get better at his defense, to to have that mindset, to let it fly from three-point land, and, the, and to see some, some different rotations. People can get upset about the 0-3 record. I don't know how you can because of who you saw on the court and basically the fourth quarter of close games is never going to be who you're going to see on the court in the fourth quarter of a regular season or a playoff game. So it it really doesn't even matter that they won or they lost. They were in position. They had good moments. They had things that they can pull out of a film session and say, this can't happen again. You need to do this better. And I think, you know, most importantly, you didn't have Miles Turner and you did not have TJ Warren. And that's maybe my biggest concern going into a game that counts against the Knicks is you don't really know how those guys are going to perform. They didn't get that dry run experience um, and, and rotations could be, just a little bit different at times than you saw. So I think that's probably the one thing that I'm disappointed they didn't at least get one game, but I'm also pleased that they are both, at least as of the time of this recording, on track to play and I would say most likely start against the Knicks on Wednesday. Because of the way the TV schedule works, as we've talked about in these podcasts before, in the preseason there's no pregame show, no postgame show, so you aren't involved in the TV broadcast. You did, however... Uh, get the opportunity to have a rare, especially now very rare prime seat uh, doing PA for game number three, the one home game. And I think that was kind of my biggest takeaway as well. I remember so vividly that final game against the Boston Celtics uh, that right before the NBA shutdown. The Pacers played more games after that, of course, but it was in a, a bubble restart in Orlando. They were off monitors. And then our first two preseason games were off monitors. So for the first time in nine months and nine days, 
we got to see basketball at Bankers Life Fieldhouse. And from our perspective, you know, I lose my courtside seat. I'm up in the radio area. There's a completely new setup. There's tons of plexiglass. There weren't fans in the building. It had sort of an eerie, odd feel to it. But it was just so good to watch the Pacers playing in that building against another team. It, it was almost like, um, you know, closing the, uh, the the door on what was opened and never really shut from that March 10th game against Boston. To, to have that come back, come to fruition, it, it just kind of felt like a 360 moment. And I think it was so fulfilling. And as we've talked about, the the credentials are based on zones and there are very specific spots we can be in the arena. It felt very abnormal because of that, but just, it was so fulfilling to watch Pacers basketball back in that building, albeit uh, in a different circumstance. I had, I want to say three major takeaways from the preseason and in, in, in general, you know, I, I'm of the camp that you can't take too much from it. The fact that the Pacers went zero and three to me is pointless. Um, at the end of the game, you're not, you're not playing any of your starters. In fact, I'm not sure a starter played in the fourth quarter in any of those three games. So I don't think there's a whole lot to take away, um, at least in the results. But number one, the three-point attempts. How could you ignore that? Uh, 40 or more threes taken in all three preseason games. To put that into perspective, the Pacers have shot 43s in the regular season in their franchise history three times. So they match that total in the preseason. That was just a remarkably stark change and a big difference. To me, individually, uh, DeMontis Sabonis. Look, it's, again, the preseason, but this is somebody who had not played since that March 10th game against Boston. It had been nine months and nine days for him. I think somebody like him, um, you would have completely understood if he came out and looked rusty, and yet he came right in and had his typical double-double in the first game. He was terrific in game number three, strong in game two also. And I, I was just really uh, impressed with how you would have never known how long this guy had off between competitive basketball games because he looked absolutely his normal self. And the third and final aspect is the defense. It's twofold. Uh, one, the Pacers gave up high shooting percentages to their opponents and oftentimes a lot more points than they would like to give up. At the same point, they were turning teams over at a remarkable clip. So there's this balance of the defense was more aggressive and it turned into more turnovers and more opportunities. But when the Pacers weren't forcing turnovers, at times they were struggling to get stops. I think that's a little bit of the push-pull you're going to see, especially early on. You've got a new team still learning a new system, an abbreviated training camp, and only three preseason games where you weren't playing your normal full rotation for all of them. I think it's going to take some time before that defense looks how Nate Bjorkman wants it to look, <clears throat> but it's very clear stylistically they're going to be more aggressive on defense and they're going to take more threes. And I think to me, those are the biggest takeaways of the preseason. So as we preview the season ahead, we've done this differently year in and year out, but I want to look at individually from a player perspective and we're going to jump around. I'm going to hit uh, a random number generator here. We're going to pick a random player and then going to discuss what we feel like is the biggest storyline. It could be the key to success. It could be something you're watching for from that player. It could really be anything. Just your big thought on that player uh, as we head into the season. And we'll go through the entire roster here. So my number generator has me hitting nine. So three, four, five, six, seven. And TJ McConnell is first up on the list. What's your biggest thought when you think of JJ, TJ McConnell here heading into this season? Well, I'll say my thought is different now than it maybe was when I interviewed TJ on media day before these three preseason games, because, you know, I considered him such a vital member of the second unit last season, someone who pushed the pace and was just, you know, maybe one of the biggest bargains in the NBA. But I think fit would be the thing that I'll be watching most with TJ because you know, I think Jay Michael may have written about it this week in the star, and there were some valid points brought up about his game doesn't necessarily fit with what Nate Bjorkgren wants. I don't think anyone would say that TJ McConnell is someone you really want to shoot a bunch of three pointers, even though Nate did say during the media availability yesterday that if you're open, shoot it. If not, pass it. 
That's just not his game. I mean, he if he was a really good three-point shooter, he would have shot many more at this point in his career. So can he be a fit in that second unit? I think the pace he can play with, obviously. I mean, he can push the tempo. He can get easy baskets. He can cause problems defensively, especially in the full court. At times, half court, um, he may have some issues. And teams could continue to try to go at him and pick on him. So can he be a fit in this staff's scheme and system I tend to be optimistic. There were some rough moments, some rough patches, I think, in the preseason. But people tend to forget how much he creates easy offense. I mean, his assist numbers, I think he was far and away the leading assist man in the pace on the Pacers in those three preseason games with a limited amount of playing time. So um, the fit of T.J. McConnell, this is one of those things. Everyone wants the Pacers to play differently, but T.J. was really good last year. Can he be really good with this group? And I think your point about his mentality was very good. I'm not sure there's a player on this roster that fits Nate Bjorkren's mentality as a player better than McConnell. He's tough-nosed, no excuses, pick up your man full court, make everything as difficult as possible. But as you noted, there are potential physical limitations there. And, And also, I think, worth pointing out, in the preseason, uh, he was often with a grouping of guys that um, he would not be necessarily um, in regular season play. I'm talking about that second unit. Uh, he was playing a lot with some guys that were further down the roster, and I think that yeah. was a bit challenging to him as well. But we'll see how rigid this system is, right? I, I mean, Nate Bjorkman has said, we want good shots, and we don't necessarily think the mid-range is a bad shot. Uh, but that is a lot of what T.J. McConnell has done and thrived last year with the Pacers and has throughout his career. <clears throat> so I think along those lines, we will see just how rigid this system is. And if it is, hey, here's what we want to do as a blanket statement, but we're going to tailor it to our guys and have success. Or is it we need to be following this path to have success? And if so, does McConnell adjust and how effectively does he adjust? And one one additional thing on this point, Um, he's a professional and he's a great teammate. He's a great locker room guy. And to me, he's someone that every team needs to have. If everyone is healthy, I think there's a chance he's not in the rotation uh, the first week of the season. Well, you know what? He wasn't in the rotation, I don't think, the first week of the season last year. Things kind of worked themselves out. You have injuries. He's not going to be someone that is going to pout or complain. And so I would caution anyone, A, closing the book on his potential to help this team this season in one week. And also, as you as you correctly pointed out, don't think – don't think too much about the preseason games because he didn't have uh, the guys around him when he was on the court. So we went a long time on this first one. We can't go this long on every player, but I do think it was topical (laughs) and timely to kind of give some discussion to McConnell. All right. So random choice. Number two, click the button here. uh, Number 15, this is in alphabetical order. So that lands us on, okay. A guy that I think might be the biggest wild card in terms of there are so many scenarios for his season uh, that you could throw at me and that I think I would ultimately believe Edmund Sumner. What's your biggest takeaway? I Well, I said I was most looking forward to, to watching him in the preseason, and I don't feel like I was fulfilled in terms of uh, I didn't see as much as I expected or wanted, but I still think that he is someone with the athleticism that can he play a role that maybe some of those Raptors did uh, for Bjorkren in the last couple of years, maybe a, a Terrence Davis type, even um, Norman Powell. I mean, I feel like there are some guys that Toronto had where you could almost put side by side and say, if given an opportunity, Edmund Sumner could be this. And so I, I'm looking forward to seeing if if Bjorkren can find someone, something out of Edmund Sumner that we haven't seen yet. And then, you know, the other thing is, this is a kind of make it or break it year, it feels like for Sumner. You don't get four or five years in the league to prove yourself because there are, there are always new guys coming in and eventually you have to make more money to stay in the league. And so you'd, you'd rather have a minimum contract than someone who's forced to make a minimum for a fourth or fifth year player. So uh, I view this as a make or break year for Edmund Sumner. And I want to see if Bjorkren, Nate Bjorkren can, can maybe bring out something from him that, that we haven't been able to see just yet. 
Help is yeah. the obvious one, though, right? <laughs> right. And he, he comes in in such a fascinating dynamic because the rotation has been so solidified during his career that you could make a case that he hasn't quite yet gotten a fair look. But that's understandable because the Pacers have had really solid players in front of him. And in, in some ways, that's frustrating. But in other ways, it shows why the Pacers are still... Um, you know, hopefully going to give him a realistic look and have held on to him for four years and maybe even more in the future. To me, the biggest storyline with him is how does he shoot the three? Uh, 26% from the three-point line in his career. Those are small numbers. That's over 80 attempts. So still small sample size, but I think it's safe to say if he's going to fill one of those roles like you were talking about, he needs to shoot the three-pointer at least at a league average level. And if he gets more... Um, regular playing time, perhaps he'll get the chance to do that. All right, uh, next random player, we get number eight, which lands us on <clears throat> Doug McDermott. And I will start here. When I was going to say, you need to start every once in a yeah. while, so I have some time. Yeah, to yeah, take. yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I'm tossing these at you, and then you have like two <laughs> seconds to react. So I have yeah. the I have the home court advantage here. Yeah. So I'll give you some time to think. Doug McDermott was the very first player I thought of when the Pacers hired Nate Bjorkren because um, he had such a great season last year. And he did that despite being on a team that was bottom in the NBA in three-point attempts and has been over the last four seasons. And, of of course, two of those were with Doug McDermott here. Um, He's never going to be the guy. We probably know what his ceiling is, which is, um, you know, a a terrific three-point shooter. If he can find the rhythm and the players around him, he's one of the best shooters in the NBA, Um, a a good teammate, and a guy that, frankly, I think has a little bit of an underrated ability to get to the rim, and I think that helps his three-point game. I I think he's strong off the dribble. How he fits into Nate Bjorkren's system will be fascinating because this is a guy that I think you could say – You watch Boyan Bogdanovich, for example, and when he went to Utah, they said, hey, can you take a double digit threes per game? It won't be that extreme for Doug McDermott. But when you talk about a good shooter getting the green light more often, you might look first at Doug. He didn't have a great preseason, just three games, just getting started. Um, But can he turn into a major weapon for this team, I think is the biggest um, storyline, the biggest thing I'm looking forward to for him headed into the year. It is obvious to say three-point shooting when you mentioned Doug McDermott's name. I think underrated has been his ability to cut, to move without the basketball, to get layups. But what I'm going to be watching is Doug McDermott defensively. And I'll admit I just thought about this while you were talking, so I did appreciate having a little extra time. But think about the Dan Burke philosophy of, of fighting through screens and whoever Doug McDermott, let's say, was was matched up with you know, there was a reason why he was guarding that person. Well, if you're switching a lot more, then what do what do offenses normally do? Well, they want they know you're going to switch, so they want to set a screen to where they can take advantage of a mismatch. And, you know, I think it's fair to say he's not the best defender in the NBA. I think he's better maybe than people think he is. At the same time, he could be someone on the court that if you know you're switching, if teams know the Pacers are switching – then they'll go pick out the mismatch and they might try to attack Doug McDermott. So how can Doug play? Can he stay on the courts? Can he stay out of trouble um, when guarding someone that is maybe an elite offensive player? You hope those aren't as many times if he's on the court with second unit players that you're not going to just all of a sudden say, hey, go stop Kawhi Leonard on this play. But I I do worry a little bit um, with with this defensive philosophy, but I do trust the staff to mix things up enough to where they'll put him in a situation to succeed. So as long as he doesn't get exposed defensively, I think he can really help this team this year. It's amazing because I just think to a few years ago, early um, in my career with the Pacers, 2014, 2015, uh, around that time, how many times I heard coaches say, we don't want to switch. We don't want to give into that. And it's amazing how quickly that narrative has changed. And yes, absolutely. I think McMillan was one of the more old school guys. He um, would switch when he felt necessary, but uh, didn't want to automatically give up that mismatch. And if the Pacers are more inclined to do that this year, roster versatility is something that we have heard a ton about as they have made uh, you know, off-season moves and drafts and all of that. And can McDermott be versatile enough? I think it's a very good question and something worth watching. All right, our next random player, we get number 11. I'll start here as well to give you a second to think, so I'm not always throwing one at you right away. Uh, Okay, well, 
you know, I said Edmund Sumner was maybe the guy that had the widest array of outcomes. And I said maybe because I think this guy could be the answer, too. Uh, let's jump in on it. Victor Oladipo is who we hit uh, right now. And so I'll start with this. As it relates to Oladipo, I think what I'm watching the most, there's, there's the obvious aspect of where is he physically? Is he close to the player he was before? I, I think that's the obvious one. But for me, I go a little bit deeper because Oladipo has the chance to be in what looks like a weak free agency class, one of the more marquee names. And I, I can't remember a time when a player has had the potential to have such a big swing in terms of his value based on just one year. And you knew that going into it. Oftentimes you'll see a guy have a great year in a contract year and he'll get a huge offer. But going into it, I can't remember a situation, at least off the top of my head, quite like this. Um, <clears throat> if Oladipo had free agency last year, I'm not sure he would have gotten you know, anything resembling the big offer that I feel like he thinks he can get. Uh, if he had it a few years ago, you know, he could have locked down probably a max offer. And so he's going into a year where a ton of money is going to be on the line based on his performance. And I, um, you know, I, I think there's an avenue where both parties hope that that future performance comes here. How does he fit that within the scheme of the team? You know, he he's he's not a player that has ever at least come across to me as selfish, but he knows that in the back of his head. And how does he marry those two things of, you know, there's a lot of talent around him. He's got Malcolm Brogdon to one side and he's got TJ Warren to the other side and he's got an all-star and Sabonis and Miles Turner. There's so much talent on the floor. The Pacers really don't need to, for him to take a boatload of shots to win like they maybe did in 2017, 2018. How those two things come together where he tries to prove to the Pacers and future teams that he's worth um, a high commodity level dollar but also fit in with what Nate Bjorkren and the team is trying to accomplish uh, it can't be an easy thing to try to achieve and it's something I'm watching very closely I am going to be watching the joy looking for that enthusiasm from Victor Oladipo and I'll admit that it will be much more difficult for me to analyze and I'm not a psychiatrist so I won't try to play one on tv or on a podcast, but I won't be at practice. I won't be, you know, at least early in the season traveling. So I'm not sure that I'm going to really know, but I do think watching the games, it's going to be pretty easy to, you know, even on television, it's going to be kind of easy to feel how Victor's feeling about things. Uh, not necessarily through interviews, because I think he can figure out a way to, to, you know, sound the best he can, even though maybe not every interview session has gone well in the last, you know, six months, but I still go back to this, and I think I've probably repeated this point too many times on our podcast. His first year with the Pacers, you know, he played great, but he changed the attitude, the, you know, culture around the Pacers to one of just such positivity and joy that I want to see that again. I mean, before Victor got hurt, I could sense something was wrong. I mean, you we could go back and listen to interviews, but you could just tell because he was dealing with a little bit of a knee situation. And really, even early in that season, it just things weren't quite the same. And last season, obviously, he was dealing with a lot and he wanted to be better than he was. So I just want to see him play with joy and enthusiasm and be someone who his teammates gush about on their own, not just when asked about. So uh, th there'll be a lot of things I want to see. I don't know what we're going to see, but I'm glad we get this opportunity that he's as close to 100 percent as I think he probably can be. And can that lead to a happier, healthier Victor Oladipo. And I think I said this tons of times during our restart podcast, but in a lot of ways, he holds the key to the Pacers' success, to the Pacers' ceiling this year. You know, imagine this team, if they could insert a player that was even close to what he accomplished in 2017, 2018, if he's even close to that. You've got Malcolm Brogdon, who was playing at a borderline all-star level and then had some injuries in the first half of last season. Devonta Sabonis was an all-star. TJ Warren has been the Pacers' leading scorer ever since he came to the team and had some monstrous games in the bubble, and we're still waiting to see um, if, if he can replicate some of those on a, uh, a bigger picture going forward. If you add Oladipo into that, I mean, you've just got so much talent. And, you know, where some teams have, you know, one or two superstars, the Pacers don't have that. But you could argue they could have three, four, five stars of their own. And how he plays this season, I think, will in, in large part determine a lot of the success level 
uh, that the Pacers are able to have. All right. Let's uh, keep going here. Random player. I think this is number five. Yeah. Um, and we get, I'll start here uh, real quickly. We get Malcolm Brogdon. And what I'm watching with him, and for me, it's very simple. It's his health. You look at his career here. His first season in the NBA, he played 75 games. But after that, 48 in year number two, <clears throat> 48 of 82 in year two, 64 of 82 in year three, and 54 of the 72 with the Pacers. So he has had injuries that have kept him out of 15 to 20 games or so each of his last three seasons. I'm pretty confident in what Malcolm Brogdon's going to be. He's a good defender. I think he's going to fit well with uh, Nate Bjorkren's system. I think he's the type of player that wants to play the style that you know Kyle Lowry and Fred Van, v- Van Vliet play on the defensive end. And I think he's very comfortable with the team around him. And I have said many times, I think if he stayed healthy, there's a decent chance if the Pacers only got one all-star last year, it would have been him and perhaps not Sabonis. That's how well he was playing before the injury started. But he's got to stay at least relatively healthy. And maybe watching Nate Bjorkren's philosophy on this is noteworthy as well. He has said you know, we're, he's more willing to give guys days off. He's more willing to, quote unquote, uh, lose the battle to win the war as it relates to regular season games and being prepared for the playoffs. So uh, to me, his health is is massive. And if he can check that box in a positive way, I think you're going to see a terrific season from Brogdon. I think you already had three point shooting as something you're keeping an eye on, I believe, with Edmund Sumner. I'm going to be watching that for Malcolm Brogdon. Not that he was a poor three point shooter last year, but you know, I feel like there's a there's just a difference between 34 or 35% and 40%. And I don't actually have his numbers in front of me. I'm not sure how he actually ended up, but it wasn't 50, 40, 90. And he did have some injuries to deal with. But uh, I want him to be someone that teams cannot leave open from three. And he got a lot of open looks when he was with the Bucks because of Giannis and how much attention that he tends to get. So I think with everyone on the Pacers roster healthy, he'll get those open looks again. Maybe not as many. But I want him to just knock those down. And if he's a laser to steal a turn from Nate McMillan, then I think that uh, everything else can really open up. So I'm looking to see Malcolm Brogdon really let it fly. He had a lot of attempts, I think, in the last preseason game. You look at the box score and you saw Sabonis, Victor, and and Malcolm Brogdon all above 20 points. And I always think that's a good sign when those three each have 20. But he had to get a lot of attempts up to get his points. So I want him to be a little more efficient, and uh, especially from the three-point arc. And as you noted with Giannis, his efficiency probably was never going to be at that level. But you look at his three-point shooting throughout his career, 41% or 40% his rookie year, 39%. His second season, 43% in his final year in Milwaukee, 33% in his final year here. And I think that's a very good note to be watching for him this season. Is he going to shoot 43% if he's on the ball as much as he is? Probably not. But can that number get, you know, into the upper 30s? And if so... I think it bodes very well. <clears throat> All right. Here's player number six. I'm ready. All right. You're going to toss it your direction. Yeah. Here's a guy I know you're very fond of. So uh, tossing you a softball, Justin Holiday. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, uh, it's almost like I if I didn't like someone, it's easier, which I, there aren't players that I don't like, but <laughs> I don't really find any fault in Justin's game. I just want more of the same from Justin Holiday. And that that is start when needed, come off the bench when needed, play all the roles continue to be you know one of the best interviews on the team I, I I'm not sure there's anything I want more from Justin Holiday think back to when the Pacers acquired him I mean is there a player that you could have envisioned in your time that you know maybe exceeded expectations because I'm not sure that I had really any I just thought hey maybe he'll um, help Aaron come out of his show a little bit that was the one thing I thought of when the Pacers signed Justin Holiday and all the things he did just give me more of the same, and I will be perfectly content for Justin Holiday. I totally agree. He shot 41% from the three-point line. That was uh, easily a career high for him. So for me, it's to prove that that year one was not a flash in the pan. Now that he's talked about how he hates free agency, he's got multiple years under him, uh, can he produce near that level in, in multiple seasons going forward, including this year? And for me with him, it's also the corner three. He took seven three-pointers in that preseason opener, and they were all from the corner. He was taking about 40% of his threes last year from the corner. It really seems like if there's one guy 
that Nate Bjorkren has keyed in on that can be their corner three guy. It's Justin Holiday. And we know the Pacers not only are going to take probably a significant amount more threes than they did last year, but also a lot more from the corner. And I think Justin Holiday might be the guy to watch very specifically there. Okay, next up we get 17, 16, 15, 14. The rookie, Cassius Stanley. Any thoughts? I, I want fans to continue to enjoy and appreciate him being a part of the Pacers, but not overreact to games he doesn't play or maybe the limited playing time he might get at the end of a game. I really like the, uh, the selection, the fit, the enthusiasm, but I've had people also say, what do you think about you know, Cassius Stanley? You think he can help? To put it simply, I'm, I'm not expecting him to do anything this year except maybe get some good run with the Mad Ants if they are able to have a season. We still don't even know about the G League season. But I, I know that I can tell usually pretty quickly whether someone's going to be a fit from a personality perspective, and I've seen that uh, he is going to be that person. He has confidence. He has athleticism. He will be also a fit once he figures out the NBA game with Nate Bjorkren. So uh, I'm not expecting too much or watching too much other than every time I I look at him, I I see a smile, and I want that to continue. I think it's fairly safe to say that he might have some unfair expectations just due to circumstance. The Pacers did not have a first-round pick, so in a lot of ways, the attention that goes to that first-round pick goes to the only guy the Pacers drafted. Well, let's remember here, he was 54th out of 60 players taken. Uh, So, you know, I, I think patience and an understanding of where he was in the draft those guys, you know, tend more often than not to be um, not NBA rotation type of players, but you can get them. Um, and so it's it's being patient with him, I think, certainly. Uh, but also, we know Nate Bjorkren wants to run a bigger rotation. Injuries are unfortunately going to be a storyline, hopefully not the major storyline they've been the last two years, but they're a storyline for every team. And if, it, if they get deep enough into their rotation where he's called upon, the one thing that stuck out to me about Chad Buchanan's inter, uh, press conference after they drafted Cassius Stanley was um, that they felt like he could play NBA defense right now when he was versatile, and that was what <clears throat> Nate Bjorkman was looking for. And uh, so from that perspective, can he fill that role if called upon in spot minutes this season? And uh, otherwise, how does he look? assuming there hopefully is a G League season, and and that's still a lot uh, up in the air and to be determined. But can he mesh right away with that group uh, when he is in Fort Wayne or wherever the games are being played? Um, I I agree with you. I think patience is a big one for him. All right. Uh, Let's do this again. I'm going to toss this your direction again, and we get a guy who – was all first-team bubble in the first round of uh, the restart, which was T.J. Warren. Yeah, T.J. Warren, the three-point shooting should fit him well because we saw in the bubble that he has range that maybe we didn't see as much of in those games prior. He was so durable last season. So I guess I'll I'll steal uh, the, the health one for T.J. Warren because coming into his Pacers career, he was not known – as someone who is very durable. He had so many injuries in Phoenix, and he's had this lingering foot issue, the plantar fasciitis, that kept him kind of out of some practices and on an injury report during the bubble games, has flared up and kept him out of the preseason game. So we don't know whether that's just kind of precautionary, get him in as good a position as possible. If you listen to Nate Bjorkren, you hear that he is someone who's always ready to play games. And that's what we have seen with our eyes, but it wasn't what what it wasn't a description that you use for T.J. Warren when he played with the Phoenix Suns. I tend to think there were some extenuating circumstances that led to him missing some of those games and uh, the fit, just everything. So I want him to stay healthy and available, and I don't want that foot to be something that continues to be an issue or keeps him out of um, action in January, February, March. So keep T.J. Warren healthy. Let him let it fly from three, and I can't see how you could uh, have any issues with T.J. Warren this season. His health is the biggest storyline. No argument there. I'm going to throw in a couple of other quick ones. The first four years in his career, he shot 28% from the three-point line. Um, And then the last two years, 
he has been at 43% and 40% respectively. And as the Pacers take more, there was a, a lot of, I think, skepticism on after having four poor years of shooting the three, if that one year, uh, final year in Phoenix where he shot 43% uh, was a bit flash in the pan. He actually proved that was not the case. He hit 40% last year. So he's another guy that I look at as the volume goes up around the board. Can he keep those numbers up? And if he can, I think it potentially makes his ceiling a lot higher, which transitions into my second point with him, which is I would have said maybe before the bubble, after getting to watch him for almost one season, uh, that I'm pretty confident I know where T.J. Warren's ceiling and floor is. And they're very close to each other. And I mean that in a respectful way. Night in and night out, he was one of the most consistent pacers. Him and DeMontis Sabonis, I think, were probably the two most consistent pacers of the season. And watching him night in and night out, you felt like he was probably never going to be a guy who gave you, I don't know, 40-50, but probably a guy that was going to rarely be in the single digits as well. Lo and behold, we got to the bubble, and he showed he was a guy who could give you 40-50. I don't think you're going to get that regularly by any means this season. There's just too much talent across the roster. And frankly, if he if he is doing that, it's probably not a good sign because it means there have been injuries or there's some sort of imbalance with the team. But is his ceiling maybe a little bit higher than we thought because of that restart performance? And if so, can he bring some of that back? Um, and, and can he have that success over – a longer stretch. And again, he's a guy where if the answer is he looks more like the bubble version of him, that obviously bodes very, very well for Indiana. All right. Next player. Uh, 15, 14, 13, 12. DeMontis Sabonis. You want to start there? I would. You know, we know a lot about Sabonis. We know one, he's a great pastor. We know that he is uh, outstanding in terms of scoring when he gets the ball in the post. We know he's a really good rebounder on a team that needs every bit of rebounding help that he can get. I saw in the preseason games him continue to be a focal point of the offense. I just want to see how he can continue to operate while on the court with Miles Turner for extended periods. I just want to make sure that the court isn't cluttered. And I think it's easier said than done. You don't want to just have Miles Turner standing outside the three-point arc like a guard, even though that may be where he starts. I just want to make sure that these two guys can continue to operate while not getting in each other's way and do what they do well while complementing each other um, offensively. The three-point shooting, we'll be watching. Maybe you'll say that one for what you're watching as well. But I want to see, more than anything, if they have an all-star team named, even though there might not be an all-star weekend, I want to see him back on that because – I know someone said he was the worst all-star in recent memory. So (laughs) if you're that bad of an all-star, you surely can't be invited two years in a row. So I want to see him make the all-star team again. I think we all know what we think of those comments. I will (laughs) say, though, uh, I was surprised. I thought you might pick his hairdo as the thing to watch. (laughs) Yeah, that was a good one, too. That's that's getting a lot of attention. Maybe we could make some T-shirts, though, with that new hairstyle, I think. There you go. Maybe you can maybe you can have some fun with it in the broadcast, especially as you're later into the year and searching for content. Who knows? There's yeah. maybe something there. You've got good idea. You and uh, you and Ken have creative minds, so I'm sure you'll yeah. think of something. Um, <laughs> you, you had it right in what I was thinking about, and if I I gave three major takeaways of the preseason when we started this podcast, and if I had to pick a fourth, it was just. Uh, the level of green light that the bigs have. Look, we know Miles Turner's going to have it. He shot about four threes a game last year, and I think that number stands to rise and for good reason. Uh, but DeMontis Sabonis and Goga Bataze, when they were open from the three-point line, it was an unquestioned shot. And that was not the case in previous years with those guys. Now, Sabonis, he took a fair amount of them last year, 67, so uh, right around one a game. So it wasn't as if he was averse to taking it. But it seems like there's a very different stylistic change. Whereas if he's got the ball on the perimeter and there's not a guy around him, he's taking that shot. So a couple things to me stand out with that one, what rate is he going to hit it at? Uh, you know, his rookie year, he took a ton of them in Oklahoma city because he was miscast due to Russell Westbrook being out there and they didn't really have a, a spot for him at center because of Steven Adams. 
and he shot 159 of them at 32%. He was 35% taking 37 in his first year in Indiana. He only took 17 in that 2018-2019 season. He did hit nine of them and was 17 for 67, 25% last year. That's a number that uh, I think everyone agrees would need to go up, especially if he's going to take significantly more. So if he's going to take significantly more, is he hitting at a better percentage, which I think he's more than capable of, but then also... If he's taking that three more often, is it can he keep it from being to the detriment of his passing skills, his pick setting skills? Because he's probably, at least early on, going to get a similar number of open looks from three last year. He was turning some of those down to run the play. And, you know, we know how many assists he had. He was third amongst big men, which in a normal year, that number that he had in the assist column um, would have easily been first among centers he had five but Jokic and Bam uh, clearly two of the best passing centers as well are also in this generation with him and uh, you know does that affect anything where he might have had a pass off and a repost down low in the paint so if he's going to take more threes can he hit them at a higher level and can he keep that from being a detriment to other areas that he has on the floor Uh, and if so uh, it'll be, I, I think, make him one of the more interesting players to watch all season long. Uh, let's see. So we get number 11. That was Oladipo. So let's go <clears throat> one below him and Jakar Sampson. Uh, I'll start with this one. You know, with Jakar, we're not sure if he's going to have a, a spot in the rotation initially. I think it would be safe to say that that answer might be no to start the season if the paces are healthy. But the Pacers haven't been healthy, and Goga Bataze, we just heard, um, you know, has an injury, which might keep him out for a little bit of time. And if he's in that role, can he do what he did in the bubble, which was the Pacers didn't have Sabonis, Bataze was dealing with injuries, and he was asked to do a whole lot of different things. And oftentimes he was asked as a guy that, uh, you know, is, is only six foot seven. 214. He was asked to guard some players that were a lot bigger than him. And I will give him so much credit for his ability to at least do that at a high enough level, uh, the Embiid's of the world, to keep the Pacers from getting killed in in those spots on the floor. And maybe because of the Bataze injury, he does have a role in game number one. And if that's the case, can he be as versatile as he was last season and especially in the restart in Orlando? Um, to me, would be the biggest key for him. And I think that's the biggest reason you brought him back in the first place, because he can do whatever you ask with a positive attitude. He's a good teammate. And you hate to see other guys get hurt, J.J., but um, in a way, it's good to see him get an opportunity to have a role if that does uh, turn out to be the case. I would like to see if Jakar Sampson can play bigger than his size listed on the roster, because he's on this team as kind of a backup center slash forward but with Goga Bataze out they're going to need some minutes from someone with maybe a little more size and and can Jacquard kind of make up for what he doesn't have in size um with just kind of positioning and heart and hustle and can he stay healthy so um he certainly serves a role on this team because Sabonis has been pretty durable but he has missed some games Miles Turner has had, you know, some nagging issues at different times in his career. And so you have to have someone that you can put in there when needed. He showed he could start last year and they didn't really miss that much. He did play well, um, especially considering, you know, his salary and where he's at in terms of uh, he was. I think he was a partially guaranteed roster spot at at the start of last season. So I just want to see, can he be bigger than he even looks? And play big and and be be someone who can pill, fill in when any of those three guys are hurt, and it'll start with Gogo Bataze. All right, we've got uh, six, seven, eight minutes to wrap this up. It's sort of hitting me though that just by the luck of randomnumbergenerator.com, most of the ones that took uh, high level analysis, I think just about everybody, in fact, uh, has already been crossed off. So let's maybe do some rapid fire here as okay. we close this out. Jalen LeCue, uh, for me, can he keep that roster spot and can, if he gets called upon, prove that he's worthy of it? A completely unknown commodity when he came in to the Pacers, he was seemingly potentially a throw-in in the TJ Leaf trade. And yet, as you look at the rosters on opening day, 
it was Jalen LeCue that got a roster spot and TJ Leaf was, Leaf was ultimately waived. We saw a little bit of him, clearly very athletic, um, but has a lot of other things he needs to build upon to have a successful NBA career and to keep that roster spot. I will be watching to see if he has highlight real worthy dunks with the Mad Ants, again, qualifying if the Mad Ants are able to play. We might feature him on Fox Sports Indiana because of what he can do from a slam dunk perspective. He and Cassius Stanley could be fun to watch uh, with the Mad Ants if they're able to have a season. Okay, next rapid fire is Goga Bataze. We hit on him a little bit a moment ago. Health is clearly an issue. He dealt with knee injuries in the restart. Uh, he came into training camp. He felt like 100% and then unfortunately has had this nagging ankle injury, played one preseason game. If he can stay healthy, I'm watching his lateral quickness. I thought his defense on the pick and roll was probably his biggest weakness last year. And as you start to see that more and more utilized in today's NBA, as you start to see the Pacers switch more, how does he cover that both from a mental and a physical perspective? Can he be better on the defensive end? We know he's got the offensive skills. Can he be an NBA player, not a you know really good EuroLeague player, and, and look less lost? I wasn't you know thrilled with what I saw in the preseason games. I wanted to see him take a step forward. I do think he has range, and I do think he can knock down shots. But you mentioned pick-and-roll defense and just kind of defense in general. I uh, need to see a step forward, and he needs to stay healthy. You can't just miss a month of time and then it takes you a while to come back. Hoping for more out of Goga in year two. And speaking of guys who have struggled to stay healthy, this guy played in six games last year, actually did get a start, but uh, is beginning the year on a two-way deal and uh, not available as well due to health issues, which is probably the biggest takeaway for Brian Bowen. You know the franchise values him because a new staff has come in and they kept him for another year of a two-way contract. He's someone that in high school was one of the top recruits in the country. Can he get back to that level? Does he have a spot in the NBA, or is he a player that might be destined to make money overseas? All right, moving on now is Aaron Holiday. And for me, it's can he carve out a consistent role to his credit? He was asked last year to start a bunch of games. He was asked last year to come off the bench for a bunch of games. And last year, at times, he was not in that rotation. His role constantly changed, probably more than any player on the team. Can he prove he's worthy of a consistent role? And if he can get that consistency, will it help breed a better season and perhaps even a breakout year for Aaron Holiday? Pat, it would seem to me as though Aaron Holiday is the kind of player that Nate Bjorkren would value and that would put a lot of responsibility on and won't be as upset about the mistakes because he does make mistakes. He does have some shots that some coaches might say are ill-advised, but I don't think Nate Bjorkren will be that coach. But how does he handle it if his playing time goes down? Because if everyone is healthy, I, I envision sometimes where he doesn't get as much playing time, doesn't get as many shots. He has to stay positive. He's so quiet sometimes. I could be confused in whether he's pouting or that's just how he is, but he's got to continue to stay to stay, you know, positive if playing time varies. All right. <clears throat> this next guy for me is very simple. Uh, we'll see if you have anything to add. When is the return date for Jeremy Lamb? Yeah, that's that's I don't know how I could say anything different than that. But also when he comes back, it's going to be tough because he needs to try to ease back into things. Think about players that have injuries like this. You can't just come back and automatically be confident going into the lane and coming down. So we'll continue to watch that. But how the team manages when he is able to play, manages his playing time and really helps get him back to where can he be a postseason player that is close to 100 percent? It's tough to do that in your first year back, but it's what I'll be watching. OK, the Butler product who's with the Pacers this year, Keelan Martin. And for me, it's how well does he shoot? Just 36 percent from the field, 27 percent from three in Minnesota that led to him being waived when the Pacers were in transition. I was really, really impressed with his game. There's no doubt in my mind that he can be a rotation player based on that aspect and based on his defense. But his shooting numbers, they have to be better than last year. And if they aren't, I think he's going to struggle to find a rotation spot. If they are, I think the Pacers may have found a little bit of a gem in the rough. He's the perfect guy that, to take a flyer on because of his size, because of the position that he plays. And I think he has a higher ceiling than many other players that are you know, 14th or 15th roster guys. So I just want to see him have the opportunity to reach his potential and perhaps see if the Pacers can have found a diamond in the rough. 
All right. Our final guy here uh, that we have not talked about is Miles Turner. I think obviously he comes in with a lot of spotlight. Can he shake any potential, um, you know, struggles that he had with knowing he was part of a trade last year? And I think he's a guy that potentially has his ceiling unlocked a lot more by this new system. I think he's somebody that could be taking six or seven threes a game. We know he can shoot them pretty well, but he's been uh, off and on in his career in terms of some seasons. He's looked like a really good three-point shooter. In some seasons, he's looked like a serviceable one. And which of those two, I think, will go a long way in determining his level of success? I would like to see Miles Turner get a little more respect. And and this is a team that I feel like is kind of under the radar. Miles Turner, to me, is one of the more under the radar big men in the NBA. And I don't think it's entirely unfair because he hasn't played great in the postseason in his career. He hasn't had those breakout postseason performances. But at the same time, he doesn't get enough recognition for his defense. He should at least be in the conversation, I feel like, for maybe second team all defense, at least in one of the last two years. And it doesn't feel like when it comes to the end of the season, he gets that. He doesn't rebound as well. That probably needs to improve. But I I think Miles Turner deserves to be thought more highly of around the league. And I I hope that he can show everyone this year what he's capable of. I think that's totally fair. Turner's been one of the top rim protectors each of the last few seasons. He led the league in blocks a year ago. And can he carve out his role maybe a little bit better? I don't think anybody had to adjust more than Miles Turner last year. And so maybe it helps him to have a year of that role under his belt and perhaps a coaching staff and system that better suits his needs. All right. Well, we ran through all 17 players as we look at our season preview. Any final thoughts from you as we gear up opening day? The opening tip is just hours away. I'm anticipating seeing a healthy Pacers roster. I'm uh, no illness issues. <laughs> That's something we're going to keep our eye on all year long. I just want to see these games be played with everyone available and to bring some joy, uh, whether it's through television, most likely, or the radio in this end of 2020, and then hope that we can get back to more normal situations at some point in 2021. And for me, the storyline of you've got 13 guys back, remarkable roster continuity, meshed with the fact that you've got a new coach and a fairly new system. Which one of those two will win out? How early and how quickly can the Pacers feel comfortable in this system? I think we'll have a lot of determining value in how well the Pacers play late in December and into January. And if they can figure that out quickly and and get running on a good start here of the season, they've got four of their first five at home as well, then I think that'll really bode well because I think this is going to be a team that uh, is probably better in the second half than the first half because of those things. Uh, But how much does continuity play in versus having a new coach and a new system? All right, that'll wrap it up for our season preview. We hope all of you have a happy holiday season, a a Merry Christmas if you celebrate, and we will be back with you next Wednesday, which means by that point there will have been four games in the book. We'll have a lot to talk about, and uh, we'll be previewing that New Year's Eve matchup, that matinee, always one of my favorites. We'll look forward to talking to you then. Until then, remember television radio coverage 30 minutes before each game, basically what you did before. Just do it again. We'll be there for you. JJ will have you on TV. I'll have you on the radio side 30 minutes before each game. For JJ, I'm Pat. We will talk to you next Wednesday on the Sideline Guys podcast.